We live on a fallen planet where sin has taken its toll. We're fallen creatures prone to selfishness. We follow Jesus in a world that crucified him. Conclusion, trouble is unavoidable. This is how Luke 17 begins. Jesus said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. He's saying life is hard. You want a hassle-free existence? Oh, wait, there's no such thing. It's impossible that no offenses should come. You know, it's been said, expecting the world to treat you fairly because you're a good person is like expecting a bull not to attack because you're a vegetarian. Life is not that discriminating. Difficulties strike us all. This world is full of obstacles. But, Jesus says, woe to him through whom they do come. Evil is inevitable, but God still holds the person who contributes to that evil responsible for their actions. Woe to the offender. It would be better for him, Jesus says, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Whoa! Sounds like Jesus is a member of the Jewish mafia. He promises a concrete wetsuit to those who stumble one of these little ones. That includes pedophiles and child abusers and drug dealers and meth labs and even advertisers and movie moguls and music producers and fashion designers who promote immorality among our children. The hottest spots in hell are reserved for those who target our kids with evil. Jesus, he says, is the defender of the offended. Corrupt a child and there's hell to pay. But this expression, these little ones, this also included the new believers who had just started following Jesus, the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors who had turned from their sin, who had begun to follow the Lord. Jesus is saying, woe to the Pharisees who discourage these new believers. The legalist who weighs down faith with heavy burdens, laws and rules and rituals will be weighed down himself with a millstone of God's judgment. Verse 3 tells us, take heed to yourselves. Why? Well, you may think of yourself as one of these little ones, but be careful you're not the Pharisee or the legalist who's weighing down the faith of others. Well, he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Boy, rather than simmer and stew and grow a grudge, when someone sins against you, just go to that person. Let them know. Sometimes we offend each other without even realizing what we've done. And we don't know until you come and tell us. And if he repents, forgive him. Hey, we all say and do stupid stuff. Anybody here never said a stupid thing or done a stupid deed? We all say and do stupid things. And when we sin, when we offend someone, we need to admit it. When someone offends you, when they confess it, be quick to forgive them. For tomorrow, you're the one that might need that forgiveness. Always be ready to extend forgiveness. Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, 
you should forgive him. Apparently, it's not up to us to question the offender's sincerity. You know, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told Peter to forgive the person who offended him seven times 70. (laughs) Seven times 70. In other words, if you're keeping count, you're missing the point. If they repent and if they mean it, forgive them. If the person who offends you says he repents and understand what repentance means, if he's willing to change, not just feeling sorry that he got caught, then we need to afford him the opportunity to repair the damage. We need to forgive him. Verse 5, And the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Oh boy, to forgive this fully, this freely? We need help, don't we? (laughs) We need a bigger faith. This is what the disciples sense. They asked Jesus to increase their faith. Now tonight, if you could ask Jesus for an increase, what would you want increased in your life? Yeah, I want an increase. How about an increase of pay? How about an increase of vacation time or sick days? How about an increase of friends or love or years to my life? The disciples knew the key to spiritual success was faith. And so above all else, they wanted a bump in faith. Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now this is interesting. The disciples asked for an increase in faith. But Jesus directs their focus to the little bit of faith that they already possessed. Oh, a mustard seed. It was a tiny, tiny little seed. But it's not the size of our faith that matters. It's the object of our faith. Jesus, he's what matters. Take the little bit of faith you have and fix it on him and watch God work miracles in your life. You know, I believe Jesus is actually talking about a specific kind of faith. When he talks about the mustard seed, Paul calls this kind of faith the gift of faith. It's a faith like a mustard seed that gets planted in us. It's not our faith. It's God's faith. It's a faith that originates in him, not us. And it gets planted in us like a seed. He plants his faith, his supernatural faith in our hearts. For a particular situation, at a particular time, under particular circumstances. He knows we need faith, strong faith. And so he plants his seed in us. It's the gift of faith. And he's saying, this is the faith that uproots mulberry trees and plants them into the sea. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you can eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. In other words, you you don't expect a bonus for just doing your job. Servant's just doing what a servant's supposed to do. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now the baseball record that I just don't get is Cal Ripken's 2,632 consecutive games played. 
So he came, he played in 2,632 straight games. I mean, why all the hoopla for a guy who just came to work every day? I mean, what's the big deal with that? Now, I'm being a little facetious, I mean, to avoid injury for that period of time. I mean, the streak is noteworthy. But, but here's my point. Nobody's going to reward you for showing up to work every day. Nobody's going to give you a bonus for doing what you've already been paid to do, what you're supposed to do. It's your duty. You don't expect some special award. In the 1970s, you remember McDonald ran an ad com- campaign. They said, you deserve a break today. You ever heard that? You deserve a break today, so get up and get away to McDonald's. And yet this could be the motto for many Christians today. Just because you witness to a few folks, just because you give a tithe or two, just because you walk a little old lady across the street, we suddenly think that God owes us. We deserve a break. Hey, that's the least that we could have done based on all that God's done for us. Christians can develop an entitlement mentality. They think God owes them. Don't be deceived. Give God your all, and after you've done so, you've only done your duty. If God were keeping count, trust me, you'd be way behind. (laughs) God created you with His hands. God redeemed you with His Son. His blessings are abundant. You can serve God for all infinity, and you'll still be on the short end of the stick when you measure His goodness with yours. God doesn't owe us the time of day. God's grace is love that we can never deserve. You know, I think for some of us, it's time to knock chip off our shoulders. We serve the Lord because we're grateful for all He's done for us, not because we're expecting some special recognition. Well, verse 11 tells us, Now it happened as He went to Jerusalem, that He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as He entered a certain village, there met Him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. You see, the distance was required. A leper was prohibited from following another person too close. Leprosy was considered by the ancients as a contagious disease. And they lifted up their voice and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went... They were cleansed. Now notice this. The lepers acted in faith in order to realize their healing. If they hadn't have acted in faith and gone and went ahead and took out for the priest to be pronounced clean, they never would have been cleansed. They had to act in faith in order to receive their healing. Before their wounds grew new flesh, they set out for the priest expecting to be healed. Faith is about expecting It was as they went that they were healed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned. And with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Now apparently, the others were all Jews. The Jews were eager to visit the priest and begin a new life. Perhaps they figured that God owed them a healing because they were Jews, because of their pedigree. But this Samaritan, he knew he didn't deserve God's blessings. I mean, he heard that daily from the Jews that were with him. He didn't deserve it. And yet, he was the leper who stopped long enough to say thanks. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? 
But where are the nine? Wow. Where are the nine? Today, millions the world over have been healed by Jesus, and yet we can still hear him ask, didn't I heal Jim and John? Didn't I heal Beverly and Betty? Didn't I comfort Andy and Ashley? But where are they? Here's the question for us. Are we among the nine? Nowhere to be found? Or are we among a few who've taken the time to come back and to say thanks? Well, Jesus asks, Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. How many of us have received God's blessings without ever bothering to circle back? Have you circled back around to say thanks? Do you think it's time for you to circle back tonight? Verse 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Now... In the Jewish mind, kingdoms consisted of militaries and governments, institutions and buildings, judicial courts and financial markets. Jews were looking for a visible, physical, tangible kingdom, a political kingdom. Jesus had been speaking consistently that the kingdom of God was at hand, but he had nothing to show for it. And here are the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, if you've really got a kingdom, where's the pomp and circumstance? Show us some traces of this kingdom. Well, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come without observation or with outward show. Nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Wow, this is such an important verse. The kingdom of God is not an earthly, visible kingdom. It's hidden from the naked eye. It flies under the world's radar. The kingdom of God works incognito. It maneuvers among us underground, in a sense. Today, God's kingdom is a spiritual movement in the hearts of men, not an outward political force. In Romans 14, verse 17, Paul puts it, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Historian Will Durant, he summed up the difference between earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom when he said, Caesar hoped to reform men by changing institutions and laws. Christ wished to remake institutions and lessen laws by changing men. The goal of the kingdom of God is not a military conquest or a political takeover. The king is changing the world one heart at a time. Verse 22, then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. Now, one day, Jesus is going to return to this earth physically. He's going to use his firepower in awesome ways. He's going to execute a military victory and establish a political kingdom on the earth. All those who love Jesus wish that that day were today, but it's not. Not yet. 
Jesus warns us not to let our inner longing lead us in the wrong direction. People will come and say, here or there. Don't believe them. Jesus provides us some signs of his coming so that we won't be deceived and so that we won't run off you know, in the wrong direction. He begins, For as the lightning flashes out of one part under heaven, shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. You know, today men look for tangible traces of a spiritual kingdom. But when Jesus returns physically to this earth, you won't have to look for traces. He'll come with a bang. Like a lightning bolt, he'll split the eastern sky. Jesus will come a second time with all the subtlety of a strike of lightning. No one on earth at the time will miss Jesus at his second advent. Trust me. Today we look for breadcrumbs, little signs of God's kingdom at work in our hearts. In that day, he'll come as a lightning flash from sky to sky. Verse 25, but first, now Jesus will return to earth a second time. But first, a few events have to take place and he gives them to us. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And that would take place in the very near future here within the next few weeks of Jesus' speaking this. He'll go to the cross. He'll be rejected by the Jews. He'll suffer and die and rise again the third day. And he goes on. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. After Jesus' suffering and rejection, and before he returns to establish his kingdom, there is a bit period of time where there will be business as usual on planet earth. People will party, and they'll marry, and they'll assume that there's no end to life. They'll just go on that way forever. Judgment will be lurking right on the horizon, but the people will be oblivious to it. What a picture of today. Our culture today is plunging headlong towards judgment. Yet, yet everyone lives with their heads stuck in the sand. They live as if they'll live forever, as if God is never going to have his say in the affairs of man. As if God is a, a mute point. Notice the phrase here. As the days of Noah. As the days of Noah. You should go back tonight and read Genesis chapter 6 and note the parallels between the days of Noah and modern times. It may just surprise you. Noah lived in a day of enormous population growth. Sexual perversion and spiritual apostasy plagued the planet in Noah's day. Read Genesis 5 and you'll notice that Noah lived at a time of scientific enlightenment. And technological advancement. Of course, all these things are much like today. The similarities are provocative. I believe it's another scriptural indicator that ours is the generation that will literally see the coming of the Son of Man. Well, Jesus speaks of the days of Noah, but he also mentions the days of Lot. Verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all, 
Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Notice again, the citizens of Sodom were oblivious to what lay ahead. They were oblivious to their judgment. In fact, on the day fire and brimstone fell from heaven, people were going about their normal routine. Remember, Jesus is speaking of that time between Messiah's rejection and his return to establish his kingdom. He's going to suffer and die and be rejected. There's also going to be a time where life will go on. It'll be business as usual in people's minds. But something else happens. Before judgment comes down, God's people go up. And Jesus mentions Lot as the example. You see, God delivered Lot from Sodom before he delivered fire and brimstone on Sodom. And this is what happens at the end of the age before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on the earth. Jesus comes back to earth after a time of fierce and fiery judgment. But this great tribulation, as it's called, won't fall upon earth until the church is taken out and up from the earth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul promises that the church, promises the church that Jesus uh, will promises the church that Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. God will judge this world, but first the church will be raptured. We'll be caught up together with Jesus. It'll be exit stage left for us, just like Lot. Before the judgment came down, God made sure that his people came out. And notice Jesus compares the church to Lot and his family, not Noah and his family. You remember the difference? Noah boards a boat and he endures the judgment. He passes through the flood. Lot leaves and escapes the judgment. Noah is a type of the Jews who have to endure the great tribulation. They are purified through this fiery time of trial. Whereas Lot represents the church who exit beforehand, they are delivered from the great tribulation. Well, in that day, in what day? The day of the rapture. He who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Boy, this brings up a provocative point. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about ten virgins waiting on their bridegroom. Five have oil in their lamps. Five allow their oil to burn out. And while they're gone to get refills for their lamps, the bridegroom comes. And they get left behind. Why? Because they weren't ready. Now, all ten were virgins. But, but all ten didn't go to be with the bridegroom because five were not ready. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us a play-by-play -play of the rapture. We hear the voice of an archangel. And then we hear the trumpet of God. And then the saints, we're told, are snatched up to heaven. But is it possible that between the signals, the voice slash trumpet, and the rapture itself, that there's a time lapse? That there's a delay? 
that there's enough time for people to make a decision? Could it be that when that moment transpires, every heart of every Christian is revealed in that moment? Like Lot's wife, you'll have the choice, a choice to make. Will you turn back towards Sodom if you've gotten too attached to the things of this world? Will you go back to gather your stuff? In other words, do you love this world more than you love God? If so, you may just get left behind. As Jesus puts it in verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. and Whoever loses his life will preserve it. There's one certainty. If we want to be raptured, we need to be ready. When he comes, there should be no hesitation. We should be ready. Lord, come, take me. Well, in verse 34, Jesus paints a picture of the event that we're discussing, the rapture of the church. He says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Now tonight I've got a heavy revelation for you. I'm just going to drop something on you. God has revealed to me the exact time of the rapture. The rapture is going to take place at 3 o'clock a.m. Three o'clock in the morning. How do I know that? Because somewhere in the world it'll be three o'clock in the morning when Jesus returns. Because notice the three activities that Jesus mentions here. Sleeping, farming, and harvesting. People sleep when? At night. People work the fields in the morning. People harvest in the afternoon. Obviously the rapture is a global event. Folks will be doing all three. Some will be sleeping on one side of the planet. Some will be working in the fields on the other side of the planet. In between, somebody will be harvesting. It's a global event that's going to take place on planet Earth when Jesus returns for his church. Chapter 17 closes. And they answered and they said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, you would think a discussion on the rapture of the church would be followed with a when, Lord, not a where, Lord. But remember, Jesus was telling them when, between his rejection and his return to establish his kingdom. The rapture takes place in between. Here they ask, where, Lord? And Jesus answers by conjuring up the image of a battlefield. Listen to the verse in the NIV. It says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. The idea is of a a, a battlefield. Corpses laying out on the battlefield and the vultures feeding on the corpses. It's a picture of war, the aftermath of war. Apparently the rapture will occur along with some kind of military conflict. Now chapter 18 begins. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. In other words, he was guided by his own whims. 
In Jesus' day, judges didn't sit in paneled chambers in fancy courthouses. They traveled from town to town. They would usually set up a tent outside of the city gate. The judge would sit in the shade and he would hear the cases. His aides would monitor who got to air a grievance. Usually it took a bribe to get you on that day's docket. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. Now understand, this woman had three strikes against her. First, she was a woman. Which in Israeli society meant she lacked the basic rights afforded to men. Second, she was a widow. She had no husband to help her. And third, she was probably poor and unable to afford the bribe. But she had one thing going for her. She had a strong set of lungs. And so she snuck up to the tent and she just screamed out for justice. Verse 4. And he would not for a while... But afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest lest by her continual coming she wearies me. (laughs) Nagging will get you somewhere, ladies. It got this lady somewhere. His motive, understand, the judge's motive wasn't justice, it wasn't holiness. He just wanted to shut up a nagging woman. The judge may also have been concerned for his safety, mind you. The Greek word translated weary there, lest she weary me, it means to blacken someone's eye. Evidently, this widow had a vicious left hook. I wouldn't say this loud enough for her to hear me, but maybe that's why she was a widow. Her husband had made her mad one too many times. Well, the judge didn't want to be the next knockout. He didn't respect God. He didn't love humanity, but he was afraid of this woman, so he decided to hear her case. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now here's a parable that is more a contrast than it is a comparison. The rabbis called this form of reasoning light to heavy. In in other words, he's saying that if a hardened judge hears a request... How much more will a caring God? Jesus reminds us that we're praying to a loving Father, not a jerk for a judge. If if a judge will answer us because of our persistence, how much more will a loving Heavenly Father? Notice verse 8, we're told that God answers speedily. Now, Now understand what this means. The Greek word is tacos. Not tacos, but tacos from which we get our word, tachometer. Your car's odometer measures the distance that you travel, right? But the tachometer measures the speed of your acceleration. When Jesus says that God answers our prayer speedily, he's not talking about the odometer here. There are times when he has to go to some great lengths 
some real distance to manipulate circumstances and to mold character before he's ready to answer our prayer. But as soon as that stage is set and the lessons are learned and the purpose has been accomplished, then God will jump into action. When God finally moves, he he does so speedily. That's the lesson. Don't give up before God revs up. That's the lesson. Be persistent. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And notice, true faith is always evidenced by persistent prayer. If you really believe God, you'll keep knocking, you'll keep seeking, you'll keep asking. Verse 9, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Now notice that. He's not praying to God. He's just talking to himself. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And I'm sure he kind of looked down his nose, pointed his finger at this poor guy praying next to him. What a pompous prig. He elevates himself by putting down the poor tax collector. How does he know what's in this man's heart? And yet, this is the essence of religion. Religion looks down its nose at the unrighteous and elevates the self-righteous. Religion is all about pride. And then the man begins to brag. He says, I fast twice a week. You know, the law of Moses required that you fast one fast, once a year, not twice a week. But this Pharisee, he loved to show off his spirituality. He had kind of a strut your stuff kind of spirituality, a showtime religion. He continues to boast. He says, I give tithes of all that I possess. In other words, he meticulously tithed out his little spice rack. He pulled out the pepper and he counted out every tenth grain of pepper and made sure it was tithed to the Lord. You know, the Jewish Mishnah described the Pharisee. He tithes all that he eats, all that he sells, and all that he buys. And he is not a guest with an unlearned person so as not possibly to partake of what may have been left untithed. Tithed everything. And yet all this detail was his way of promoting himself, not really trying to please God. Verse 13, and then the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector, he knew he was a sinner. Notice he beat his breast In other words, he knew where the problem was, the heart. You see, guys, at the heart of our problem is a problem in our heart. The tax collector knows he doesn't deserve God's blessing, so he throws himself on God's mercies. His approach is just the opposite of that of the Pharisee. But Jesus says of the tax collector in verse 14, I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. 
This is how he puts it. This tax man, not the other, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. I like that. The self-righteous remained unrighteous, whereas the confessor ended up clothed in the righteousness of God. Well, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Now, now Mark's gospel says at this point that Jesus was greatly displeased. How dare they assume that Jesus doesn't have time for these little children, that they would be a bother to him. But Jesus instead, he called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. I mean, rather than a nuisance, Jesus holds up this child as a model. You see, his kingdom is for adults who are children at heart. You grow and you prosper as a child of God if you're not so grown up that you've become phony or skeptical or bitter or independent or proud or hypocritical or programmed. Isn't it amazing what happens to grown-ups? How they lose that innocence and that faith of a child. Do you have the humility and the simplicity and the trust of a little child. That's what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him saying. Good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice Luke says that this man was a ruler. Matthew says that he was young. Mark says that he had great possessions. Put it all together and you've got a rich Young ruler, fresh off the cover of GQ magazine. Here's a Jew on GQ right there. The guy had it all. He was wealthy, he was healthy, he was young, he was powerful. But what he lacked was what he needed most. He longed for peace. He worried about his soul. And notice what he calls Jesus. He says, good teacher. This critical word here, the word good, is the critical word. You see, no rabbi was ever called good. Judaism reserved the term good for God alone. Thus Jesus asks him, Why do you call me good? For no one is good but one, that is God. In in other words, he said, Do you realize what you're calling me when you refer to me as good? Are you calling me God? Is that really your conclusion that I'm God? Are you ready to submit to me on that basis? That's what he's asking him. Well, Jesus continues, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus, notice, is reading through the second table of the Ten Commandments. He's reading the last five commandments. Why? Because the first five commandments dealt with man's relationship with God. The second five deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. And here Jesus rules out the last five. This is not where the man's problem is. The man's problem is in his relationship with God. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. 
Matthew adds uh, that the young man said, he, he asked the question, what do I still lack? He said, I've kept all these things from my youth, but, but what do I still lack? He sensed that there was still more to it than just keeping the commandments. The rich young ruler's problem was not his relationship with his fellow man, but it was in his relationship with God. Here was his problem. He had made money his God. And so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now remember, this dialogue was in response to the initial question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sandy, does this mean that you have to sell all your possessions to be saved? Well, let me say, for this man, that's exactly what it meant. This may not be Jesus' requirement for all rich folks, but it was certainly what he expected from this particular fellow. You see, this rich man had made money his idol. Now, money's not evil. It, it, it's the... Uh, the love of money is what's the root of all evil, not money itself. Money itself is not evil. Money's a tool that, that's to be used for good. But, but here's what makes an idol. This man had taken a good thing and he had turned it into an ultimate thing. This is, this is what always makes a wall. Your family is a good thing. But you can take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing so that it replaces God in your life. It becomes an idol. Anytime you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. This man's wallet had become more important to him than his own soul. And this is why Jesus tells him to sell all. Why? Because Jesus wants no other rivals in his life. Nothing else in his life that would rival his affection for Jesus. You see, once you turn an item into an idol... It's hard to just wean away. It's hard to gradually back away. Idols become addictive. At times to break its hold, you've got to go cold turkey. For this man, you've got to sell all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 describes how the believers had come to Christ. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. God's salvation is free. But you can't follow Jesus dragging up a bag, of, a bag of idols with you. I mean, Jesus isn't content to be one of the several gods that you serve. No, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Verse 23 is a sad verse. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Possessions have a way of possessing us. It was Rockefeller who once said, The poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Remember Lot's wife. She was so attached to the things of Sodom that even in the wake of its destruction, she couldn't turn away. She was too addicted to Sodom. She loved it more than even her own salvation. Remember Lot's wife, cling to God, not gold. And when Jesus saw that he 
became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It was G. Campbell Morgan who suggested that possibly by the needle's eye, our Lord was referring to the small gate of a city through which no camel could pass except unloaded and bending down. At night, the main gate would be closed, so the only entrance was, quote, the needle gate. The camel could only enter the needle gate, though, if it was unpacked and stripped down. And then it had to crawl on its knees through the gate. Likewise, a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God until he strips himself of all the other rival affections and bows his knee to Jesus. Verse 26, And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? You know, the disciples thought Jesus was being severely strict. But Jesus said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And this restores the proper perspective. You see, every time a person is saved, a miracle is required. Do you realize that? People say, well, we don't see miracles today. Oh, yes, you do. Anytime somebody gives their life to Jesus, anytime somebody's born again, it's a miracle. Salvation is not the result of human ingenuity, but the work of God's Spirit. Our redemption is a human impossibility made possible by the grace of God. Well, then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. And so he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come everlasting life. You know, you know guys, there is a cost to following Jesus. For each of us, there are attractions and there are possessions that we have to forsake in order to follow the Lord. And yet, in the end, nothing we have abandoned for Jesus will be considered by us as a sacrifice. Our so-called sacrifice will be so rewarded, both in time and eternity. Swapping the world for Jesus is the most lucrative deal you'll ever make. You get so much in return. There was a former oil baron who said, If you know how rich you are, you're not very rich. That's probably true. That's certainly true for most Christians. We are infinitely rich with our blessings in Christ. Some of you don't know how rich you truly are. Well, then Jesus took the twelve aside. And this must have been a very somber moment between Jesus and his men. And he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For He will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge Him and kill Him. And the third day He will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Boy, it wasn't what they were expecting to hear. And so it just sailed right over their heads, through one ear and out the other. They just didn't get it. 
Well, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now, now the name Jericho means city of palms. A lot of palm trees down in Jericho. It's a warm weather resort near the Dead Sea. This is why Jericho had more than its share of street people and vagrants. It was sort of like a South Florida beach town. Great place to go if you don't have a home. The infirmed and the outcasts, they, they would line the streets. They were the only eyesore in a beautiful city. Well, there is apparent, an apparent contradiction here that gets cleared up by archaeology. Notice Luke says that Jesus met this blind man while entering the city. Whereas, if you remember, Matthew says he met him as he left the city. Archaeology has cleared this up. The archaeologist has discovered that there were actually two Jerichos. There was an ancient city, and then there was a modern city at the time that had been built by King Herod. Thus, Jesus met the blind man between the two cities. He was leaving the ancient Jericho, and he was about to enter the new city when he came across this blind man. Evidently, both gospel writers were correct. And hearing a multitude passing by, he, the blind man, asked what it meant. And so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. I mean, though this beggar was blind, he saw more than most men, trust me. He'd heard of Jesus. And he had concluded that he was the Messiah, the son of David. And now he seizes on his opportunity. He cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Hey, beware of those so-called friends who will discourage you from crying out and coming to Jesus. Beware. Oh, they don't want you to embarrass yourself. They're concerned about your social standing. They're afraid that maybe you're getting too fanatical, all this Jesus stuff. You know, maybe your love for Jesus, your need for Jesus is making them feel uncomfortable. They want to cool you down to their temperature. Boy, I'm glad this man turned a deaf ear to those guys. If he had listened to them, they would have robbed him of a miracle. No, he kept screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 40, So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And what sights these eyes would see. In the next week, Jesus will be crucified for the sins of the world. He'll be raised from the dead three days later. And these eyes that were a few minutes earlier blind before Jesus healed them will see all of these things. How much this man would have missed if he had allowed himself to be intimidated from crying out to Jesus. I hope you don't miss a single blessing God has for you. Don't you dare listen to those people who'd want to shut you up. You come to Jesus. You cry out to Jesus. 
and he'll work miracles in your life. Father, thank you for your word tonight, for these two wonderful chapters. Lord, help us to take these truths and apply them to our lives and let your love for us grow still more and more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.